What's up, Knowledgers? This is Danny. What's up, guys? This is Chris. And y'all are listening to Serial Knowledge. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another week of Serial Knowledge. What's up, guys? I'm back. Did you miss me? Oh, I missed you. Did you miss me? I missed you. I bet everybody missed you last week because I'm... last week we just had a solo recording. That was awesome. It was great. It was fun. I, but I'm, I missed you. Um, I, I, I missed your banter. <laughs> the episode was extremely short without anyone to talk to. So I just sat there by myself, just I, screaming to all of our tens of listeners. I got a sneak peek of the episode, though. I have to say you did a pretty good job. Thank you. I appreciate You're it. You're so welcome. I'm back. I'm ready. Hey, we got a great case for you guys today. Yeah, this one's creepy. It's a doozy. It's a we hope y'all got your guesses in because I told y'all we were going to be in New York this week. So we hope everybody got a chance to send us an email with your guesses. Yeah, guys. Did you get your guesses in? I no. got mine in. Well, I mean, I got mine in, but oh, wait, I know about this. Yeah, you're the one presenting it, so I hope you know about it. So, Chris, go ahead and tell them who we we're going to be taking care of today. Guys, we are going on the paranormal side today. Oh, let's go. Let's go. Let's get that spooky shit rolling. This is actually one of the more famous paranormal cases for all you guys out there. It is the Amityville Horror House. Ooh. So buckle up, hold on tight. Let's get ready for this roller coaster ride. You All ready? Right. I'm ready. Let's All go. right, let's do it. We're going to start off by talking about Ronald Butch DeFeo, who was born on September 26, 1951, in Brooklyn, New York. DeFeo was the oldest of five children born to Ronald DeFeo Sr., who happened to be a successful car salesman, and Luis DeFeo. Ronald Sr. worked at his father-in-law's Brooklyn Buick dealership and provided his family with a comfortable, upper-class lifestyle. But he also served as a domineering authority figure and engaged in hot-tempered fights with his wife and children. Sounds like a great guy. He was awesome. Stand up. Yeah, sounds like a guy of the 50s. Yeah. The most frequent target, though, of abuse was their eldest child, Butch. Of whom much was expected. It only got worse at school when the overweight and brooding boy was the victim of relentless taunting and bullying from his classmates. So he didn't have it easy as a kid, guys. Yeah, he didn't. Seems like it. Mm -mm. Um, As DeFeo matured, he began lashing out physically against his father, as well as his few friends. His concerned family took him to a psychiatrist, but the visits didn't sit well with DeFeo who denied that he even needed help at all. I feel like that was kind of a thing back then though, like It was. A lot of a lot of times people kind of I mean until recently people just, like didn't really pay attention to any type of mental health and bullying and shit like that. Yeah, but I think it was opposite with him. I think he was just like, yeah, I'm not crazy, whatever. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Uh the trips to the doctors ended up stopping though, and in their place, the DeFeos used the incentive of cash and presents including a $14,000 speedboat in the hopes that the gifts would placate their troubled son. I mean, hey, money definitely buys happiness. Everyone knows that. Uh, (laughs) All right, let's go with that. (laughs) But the new tactic only made the problems worse. By age 17, DeFeo had become an LSD and heroin user and was expelled from school for his violent outbursts. In spite of his academic setbacks, the DeFeos continued to reward their son. At the age of 18, DeFeo received a prized position at his grandfather's car dealership with little to no expectations. Man, I wish my job had no expectations for me. Right? (laughs) I wish I could get paid that money to, you know, just sit around and do nothing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, He also earned weekly stipends from his father. 
regardless of his attendance or job performance at work. DeFeo funneled this salary into his new car, another present from his parents, as well as guns, alcohol, and drugs. All right. That's that that Californication type (laughs) shit. (laughs) Apparently, it's not just California. Yeah. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. (laughs) Sounds like a good time to me. It does. DeFeo's strange behaviors seem to only increase with time. He threatened a friend with a rifle during a hunting trip. Then, later that day, acted as if nothing happened, guys. Uh, All right. Yeah. Uh, He also attempted to shoot his father with a 12-gauge shotgun during a fight between his parents. Um, At that point, DeFeo pulled pulled the trigger at point-blank range, but the gun malfunctioned. Damn, so he he didn't just threaten. He, like, literally tried to actually kill him. Yep, he... Jesus. Yeah, this, <laughs> this is truth, guys. He literally, the only reason his dad even survived that night was because the gun malfunctioned. Well, that's like the one time you're grateful for like not taking care of your gun. Right. Jeez. Um, or you could be mad. I mean, it depends on, you Yeah, know. it depends on if your butcher is dead. <laughs> <laughs> his surprised father ended the argument but was left stunned by the confrontation. However, guys, this incident foreshadowed the more violent events to come. In 1974, feeling irritated by what he believed to be a meager salary, plotted methods for embezzling money from the car dealership. He's already getting paid to pretty much do nothing, so now he's going to embezzle from the dealership. Why not? I mean, because it's dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, I mean... Hey, go off, Butch. (laughs) You rock and roll. The in, in late October, the dealership entrusted him with the responsibility of depositing more than $20,000 to the bank. DeFeo planted, planned a mock robbery with a friend, agreeing to split the money evenly with his accomplice. The plan went off without a hitch until police came to the dealership to question him. Instead of calmly answering the officer's questions, DeFeo exploded into rage. When police, suspicious that DeFeo was lying, asked him to come to the station to check out mugshots of possible suspects, he refused to comply. I mean, it sounded like if he just like kept his cool, he would have totally gotten away with stealing he would have like. Grand. I think that goes with anybody that gets like questioned by police. Yeah, they get nervous and they react in a negative way, and then they get their shit. I I mean, I could understand getting nervous. Like, I get nervous. Like, if a cop's gonna come question me, I'm gonna be like, uh, ooh, ooh, ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, being nervous and being questioned by cops, that's gonna come, whether you're guilty or not, but the way he reacted, I mean, he could have easily gotten away with stealing 20 grand. Oh, he could have, but no, he exploded into rage. Yeah. Um, Ronald Sr. began to suspect that his son had committed the robbery, But when he questioned his son about his lack of cooperation with the police, DeFeo threatened to kill his father. So this is twice now. Yeah, so he attempted, and now he's threatening to kill again. Jesus. All right, guys. In the early morning hours of November 13th, 1974, DeFeo acted on his threat. Using a 35 caliber Marlin rifle from his secret gun stash, he entered his parents' bedroom and shot them both while they slept. He then entered his brother's bedroom, shooting them both in their beds as well. He ended by shooting his sisters point-blank in their bedrooms. DeFeo then showered, dressed for work, and collected his bloody clothing and the murder weapon in a pillowcase. He dumped the evidence in a storm drain on the way to work at the dealership at 6 a.m. Jesus. Yep. Like, so, he just fucking murders everybody in his entire family, yep. takes his clothes and the murder weapon, and just goes the fuck to work. 
And, and you want to know what the shitty part about this, Danny? What's that? Uh, his oldest sister, the oldest one, who was 18 at the time, right, woke up to the sound of, you know... Of him killing his family? The, sh- the shooting. <laughs> I mean, she didn't know, like, you know, he was right. murdering. Um, and she actually exited her bedroom, came out and said, you know, saw her brother with a gun in his hand. Right. And was, was like... terrified. I don't know. It doesn't... It never really said, like, oh. how she was... Acting. Right, how she reacted to the same uh, But she just basically said, hey, what's going on? Right. And he told her, oh, nothing's going on. Go back to bed. Jeez. Uh, and his sister trusted him, and she went back to bed. And he Sealed her he, own fucking fate he, at he that actually, point. He actually waited until she fell back asleep, followed her into her room, and shot her. I mean, if you gotta go, dying in your sleep is probably the way that you would want to go, but jeez. <sighs> yes and no. Yeah, I don't know. That's fucking crazy. Upon arriving at work, DeFeo called home pretending to not know why his father hadn't shown up for work. Saying he was bored around noon, he left work and spent the day with friends. He attempted to secure an alibi by telling each of the people he visited that he couldn't seem to reach anyone at home. At around 6.30 on the evening of November 13, 1974, Ronald DeFeo burst into Henry's bar in Amityville and declared, You gotta help me. I think my mother and father are shot. DeFeo and a small group of people went to 112 Ocean Avenue, which was located not far from the bar, and found that DeFeo's parents were indeed dead. I feel like the fact that he was able to like go into a bar and actually like feign panic and ask for help because he's pretending to find his parents shot, mm-hmm. it says a lot about the psychology of Ronald at this point. And at this point, pretty much no one is suspecting him because he's you know, told everyone, I don't know why they're not answering. Right, and he showed up to work on time and, like, called his dad pretending to not know why his dad didn't show up to work and shit, like... Right. Uh, one of the group, Joe Yeswit, made an emergency call to the Suffolk County Police, who searched the house and found that six members of the same family were dead in their beds. DeFeo cited or told them about an old grudge between the maid man and the family over some work that DeFeo had done for him at the dealership. He then told police that he had been up late watching TV that night and unable to sleep had, you know, gotten up, dressed, and left for work. Right. He said that, you know, when he left, he firmly believed that his whole family was still asleep in bed alive. And I just, that, again, I just can't believe that, like, in an interview, he's able to compose himself to be able to say shit like that and right. like, believe his own lie. He then, you know, told police, hey, you know, I have an alibi for the whole day. And he told them where he was, what he was doing, you know, solid alibi like most people do. Right. Police then placed DeFeo in protective custody as they searched for a suspect. Because, again, he pretty much said, hey, it's a mafia hitman that right. killed my family. Yeah, he played the, the family member of a victim really well. After... Police more carefully searched the family's home. DeFeo's testimony actually ended up beginning to shatter or crumble. Finding an empty box for a recently purchased 35 caliber Marlin gun in DeFeo's room, that gave authorities, you know, some... Yeah, some pause, some, some hesitation. Some pause, yeah. questioning. Yeah, that's a little odd because they know that that's the type of gun that murdered everybody. And so right. they find a, a box for that same exact type of gun in his room. That's... That's going to cause you to question a few things about his alibi. I mean, you got to sit there and stop and be like... Yeah, you got to at least scratch your head at that <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure at first they're like, oh man, a hitman. Wow, that sucks. Right. And then they're like, wait a tick. Mm-hmm. 
As the timeline came together, it seemed more realistic that the murders had happened early in the morning. As the family was still all in their pajamas, nobody was dressed for the day, nothing. So it couldn't have happened earlier in the day, like DeFeo had said for right. his test, or not his testimony, but his... His statement to the police. Yeah. Yeah, because everyone was still in their pajamas. Right. So he said, hey, they were still alive when I got up at, you know... Right. And went at, to work at 6 a.m. 6 a.m., yeah, that's odd. But if dad had gone to work at, you know... At the, yeah, if he was supposed to be there at the same time, he wouldn't be in his pajamas Exactly. Anymore. Yeah, that makes um, sense. All right, so when the police started questioning DeFeo about the new evidence that they had found, he ultimately began changing his story. Right. Uh, he said that Fellini, this, you know, mysterious mafia man, had basically come into the house, uh, pointed a gun at his head and was like, hey, we're here to murder your family, but we're <laughs> going to have you watch us do it. Wow. Sounds like a real believable story. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, his first one was more believable than that, but he knows that he's getting caught now, so he's going to change it. Right. So, again, he basically says uh, Fellini and an accomplice now, so not just Fellini, but Fellini and an accomplice dragged him from room to room and made him watch as they murdered his family. So we've got multiple mafia members now. Yep. Love it. Um, as his story kept unraveling, though, because I'm going to assume that the police, you know, kept saying, that does not seem right. Right. That's not tracking with that's, what you told us. That's, that's not sketchy. What, yeah. yeah. The evidence is showing us uh, things differently. They finally got a confession from him. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he finally broke down and said, quote, once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. That's a very vague confession. So basically, he's admitting that he, you know, killed yeah. his family, but that he just couldn't stop. Right. That something came over him. That's what he sounded like he's trying to claim. Yeah, this that was. Um, and, and later, you'll see that he changes his story again. Yeah, he's... He backs himself into a corner and continues to try to change his story to get mm-hmm. out of it. Yep. Yeah. Um, so Butch DeFeo's case came, or the trial started on October 14th, 1975, um, almost a year to the you know, exact date of the murders. Right. So the pros- prosecution of DeFeo, uh, the responsibility to see to it that such a man would never be a danger to anyone in in the community again, rested with Gerard Sullivan, who happened to be assistant district attorney with Sulphur County, New York. Despite DeFeo's confession, despite the fact that he had been able to lead investigators to the exact spot where he had disposed of the evidence, and despite the fact that Butch's 35 caliber rifle was positively ID'd as the murder weapon, Sullivan took no chances in his approach to prosecuting. I mean, I feel like that's a fair approach. You don't want to take any chances. Nothing is certain in court. I mean, you don't want to assume that just because he had the same gun, same, you know, everything, that he did it. They have evidence that pointed to him, but you still got to play the case out till it's done. Yep. For sure. Um, During the period of pretrial interviews and jury selection, which can take a while. Oh, for sure. uh, Sullivan had studied DeFeo himself. Questioned him, observed how he behaved and interacted with others. He knew that Butch was a pathological liar, also that he was very evasive. He had retained well-known area attorney William Weber for his defense. His pattern of behavior before the murders would afford Weber the opportunity to plead innocence by reason of insanity on his client's behalf. There it is. (laughs) <laughs> I told you he was going to claim that somebody or something came over him, something like that. Yep. So basically, I don't know if you guys know, and I may have mentioned this in a previous case, 
today's legal definition of insanity, okay, mm-hmm. criminal insanity, right. is knowing right from wrong at the time of the murder. Right. Or crime, sorry, not just murder, but, you know, if you decide to commit a crime. Right, yeah, pleading uh, guilty or pleading innocent by... Reason of insanity. Yeah, exactly. Um, basically, they're going to be a matter of, hey, did they know right from wrong? Did they know what they were doing? Right. Were they aware of the things that they were doing? Were they conscious making... I mean, a lot of people have sat there and said, well, yeah, I mean, I knew what I was doing, but I didn't know it was wrong. Right. Which I'm like, how do you... I don't know. Of sound mind. But, <laughs> but it's like being of sound mind, but not of sound morals. But Sullivan knew that Bitch DeFeo was not crazy. He just was a violent, cold-blooded killer and was determined to put him away for life, pretty much. Uh, His opening statement to the jury was very crucial as it would set the stage in his attempt to reveal the truth about DeFeo's criminal character. He could not afford to take for granted that the jury would see DeFeo as he did so as a sane, methodical murder. Here's the thing, guys. Methodical, not... I mean, methodical against his dad, yes. Yeah, I mean, he was... He was habitual with threatening his father about killing him. But the rest of the family, I don't see that as methodical. No, I think I think that he went after his family mostly just forensically because if he's going to kill his dad, the people in the house are going to wake up and find him. So he killed everybody else to make it more difficult for him to... Yeah, I guess. I just, you know, that's where I don't see the methodical. But again, methodical to his dad, yes. Methodical to the family, no. So the prosecutor, Sullivan, started out the trial by saying, Each of you will be changed to some degree by this case. You will leave this courtroom after rendering a verdict perhaps a month from now, carrying with you an abiding memory of the horror that occurred in that house at 112 Ocean Avenue in the dead of night 11 months ago. Bear in mind that the evidence establishing and bearing upon how these crimes were carried out is as important to your verdict as the proof bearing upon who carried them out. He continued because he was anticipating an insanity defense. Uh, Much of the evidence of how will bear upon the issue of whether you will excuse the defendant for his action by reason of some mental disease or defect. If you will keep your minds open, carefully evaluate and assess all of the proofs, I am confident that at the end of the case, you will come back into this courtroom and find Ronald DeFeo Jr. guilty of six counts of murder in the second degree. But he's also sitting there saying that, in the beginning, methodical murder. And if I'm correct, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, second degree murder is not premeditated. No, there's no premeditation for second degree. Okay, so basically he's saying, yeah, Ronald DeFeo is a methodical murder, but we're only going to get him on second degree. Right, yeah, which is basically he's just trying to have them lean towards his insanity, but if he's already made a previous statement about how methodical he was in these murders, kind of contradicts his opening statement. That's what I was wondering, because I feel like that contradicted. Yeah. So the question of DeFeo's mental state at the time of the murders would remain the defining piece of evidence upon which his acquittal or conviction would rest. Prior to the trial, Weber had shrewdly attempted to have the case dismissed outright alleging that Butch had been refused access to counsel right before the police took his confession. I don't know if that's even true or not. There was nothing that said he was refused. I mean, I don't know why he would be. Obviously, that's against the law. It is. It's majorly like the police can get in trouble if they refuse you the right to a lawyer. It's it's part of the Constitution. It's the Miranda rights. But I don't don't know if we have proof that they was actually uh, refused his access to counsel. Um, He further contended that the confession itself was obtained under duress, 
the product of physical abuse on the part of the police as well. Neither of these claims stood up under scrutiny, however, and Weber was left to defend the client, his client's actions on the grounds that he was legally ins insane at the time that he took place. Sullivan was present enough to see that a one-dimensional argument that DeFeo was in fact sane and responsible for his actions might not be enough to convince the jury of his guilt. Sullivan called a number of witnesses, including police officers and detectives, who had worked the case and assorted relatives and friends of Butch's. Through their testimony, he sought to present to the jury a more three-dimensional portrait of a man who was capable of murdering six defenseless family members, but no witness offered him this opportunity more so than DeFeo himself. I don't understand why the defense always does this. Like, they're like, yeah, go get on the witness stand. Right. <laughs> he has the right to not go on the witness oh, stand. Oh, no, absolutely so. he does. I just find it funny because he basically just screwed himself over. Yeah. I've seen it where people actually help themselves when they go on the witness stand. But, and that's true. But I think he definitely, he played into the prosecution's hands more than he did into his own defense. Oh, totally. So Weber called his witness and led the questioning, predictably leading his client to supply responses that would burnish DeFeo's claim of insanity. Holding a picture of his mother as she lay slain in her bed, Weber asked his client, Ronnie, that's your mother, isn't it? DeFeo responded, no, sir. I told you before, and I'll say it again. I have never seen this person before in my life. I don't know who this person is. Weber proceeded to show DeFeo a photo of his father's body and asked, Butch, did you kill your father? Did I kill them? Or did I kill him? I killed them all. Yes, sir. I killed them all in self-defense. Which is just all over the place, because he literally just looked at a picture of his dead mom and was like, I've never seen that woman before in my life. And then he looks at a picture of his father and goes, Did I kill him? Yep. Yeah, kill yep. all of them. In self-defense. <laughs> Which I think <clears throat> I think possibly he could be trying to play into his plea of uh, innocent by insanity, but... Yeah, because imagine being on the jury and you see some guy going, That's not my mom. I don't know what you're talking about. But I and definitely <laughs> killed her, all my siblings, and my dad. In self-defense. <laughs> So Sullivan wore his straightest poker face while some members of the jury gasped out loud in response to DeFeo's courtroom confession. Weber continued unfazed, asking why Butch had done such a thing. He said, as far as I'm concerned, if I didn't kill my family, they were going to kill me. And as far as I'm concerned, what I did was self-defense and there was nothing wrong with it. When I got a gun in my hand, there's no doubt in my mind who I am. I am God. We have no words. I just, I don't even know what to say to that. Like, he's claiming self-defense, and then he says that he, when he, he basically alludes to saying that he feels so powerful with a gun that he is God. So he's, so basically he's saying he has the right to decide who lives and dies. Yeah, he's definitely got some psychological stuff going on, or yeah. he's at least trying to portray that he does. Yeah. To the average layman member of the jury, DeFeo's testimony might have seemed to be that of a deranged lunatic, uh, someone who had a fleeting grasp on reality. And it was precisely this possibility, the possibility that DeFeo would escape judgment by duping the jury, that Sullivan ended up working the hardest that he's ever worked to prevent this from happening. Uh, he wasted no time in assaulting DeFeo's testimony during cross-examination, he ridiculed DeFeo's seeming inability to remember who his own mother was, 
He exposed inconsistencies between his testimony and the statement he gave police on the night of the crime. Most of all, Sullivan pushed DeFeo's buttons, aggressively set forth to rattle his composure, to inflame his arrogance and hatred. Sullivan wanted the jury to see that rather than being a victim of insanity, Ronnie Butch DeFeo Jr. was in fact a lucid, devious, cold-blooded killer. His questions began to center around the murders themselves and DeFeo's conflicting accounts of his actions that night. Sullivan knew that he would not be able to get a straight accounting from Butch in regard to what had transpired, but he did know that he could provoke the murderer into revealing the twisted sense of enjoyment he got from killing his entire family. I mean, did he really get, like... Enjoyment out of it? I hope not. I don't know. He he definitely shows some signs of psychopathy, so he might have, honestly. Yeah, it starts out by a Sullivan asking, quote, you felt good at the time? Butch responded with, yes, sir, I believe it felt very good. Is that because you knew that they were dead? Because you had given them each two shots? He says, I don't know why. I can't answer that honestly. Do you remember being glad? I don't remember being glad. I remember feeling very good. Sullivan's efforts to this end culminated in provoking Butch to the point where he actually threatened the prosecutor's life. He said, quote, you think I'm playing? If I had any sense, which I don't, I'd come down there and kill you now. You're threatening a prosecutor in, in the middle of court. Like <laughs> You're not doing this like in an office. No, you're doing this in front of jury, judge. Yeah, he's not he's not setting things up very well for himself at the moment right now. No, he's not. So, the ability to prove or disprove DeFeo's mental state at the time of the killings was crucial to the success of both his defense and prosecution. Leaving nothing to chance, both sides had retained the services of two local highly reputable psychiatrists. Dr. Daniel Schwartz was retained for the defense and was no stranger to criminal proceedings. He had interviewed a number of defendants testifying in hundreds of cases. He would later gain widespread national notoriety as the psychiatrist who found David Berkowitz to be criminally insane in the wake of the Son of Sam slangs. So this guy's very credible. He's, yeah, yeah, majorly (laughs) credible. Right. Sullivan was aware of the crucial juncture the trial had now reached. All of the groundwork he had laid, all of his attempts to flesh out Butch DeFeo's murderous persona for the trial would be for naught if he were to allow Weber and Schwartz to take control of the final stage of the trial. Despite the fact that he had retained the services of another very prominent psychiatrist, Sullivan knew that he had to rely on his skills as a prosecutor and cross-examiner as on the liabilities of his expert witness. As he wrote in his account of the trial, quote, the jurors had been learning about DeFeo and his murders for almost two months. They had listened to his lies and abusive language for days. Dr. Schwartz had only talked to him for hours. I would show that the psychiatrist didn't know the real Butch DeFeo. As it happened, Sullivan caught a fortunate break in the form of Weber's questioning of his own witness. In a move that could clearly be interpreted as overconfidence in Schwartz's ability on the stand, Weber posed only a few preliminary questions to his witness, then proceeded to let Schwartz blithely deliver a mini-lecture on psychosis, 
disassociation, and criminal insanity. Sullivan noticed that the jury was indeed affected by his professional delivery, by what appeared to be his expert grasp of the subject and how it applied to Butch DeFeo's actions on the night of November 14, 1974. Despite this, Sullivan silently noted a number of key points Schwartz had made, which Weber failed to challenge or ask Schwartz to expand upon. He smiled, silently planning to do so himself during cross-examination. Sullivan opened his line of questioning by referring to Schwartz's prior experience as an expert witness, attempting to rattle him by demonstrating the extent to which he had researched the witness. Seeing that this provided only limited benefit over a short period of time, Sullivan moved swiftly to the case at hand, contesting Schwartz's characterization of DeFeo's behavior after he had slain his family. He says, quote, Is this not indicative of a person who has gone to very careful lengths to remove evidence of the crime that would connect him to that crime out of that house? It's evidence of somebody who is trying to remove evidence from himself, too, that he has done this. Schwartz responded, we are now speculating as to the motive for the cleaning up. If you are familiar with Lady Macbeth's complaint, what will these hands never be clean? She's not hiding a murder from anyone, but she can't live with the imagined blood on her hands. Sullivan didn't buy a word of it and was determined not to let the jury buy it either. Doctor, he roared, is that your considered psychiatric opinion? My considered psychiatric opinion, counselor, is that he's not hiding this crime from anybody by picking up the shells. The bodies are there, the bullets are in the people. Everything that he could get that would connect him with the crime he removed from the house, didn't he? What you are talking about is trivia compared to the six bodies, Schwartz responded flatly. His indifferent response ignited the prosecutor's sense of outrage. Trivia that he removed the evidence out of the house that would connect him to the crime? Trivia that has nothing to do with whether he thought that the crime was wrong? Thundered Sullivan. The evidence is there in the victim was Schwartz's only response, but Sullivan had him on the run. The respectability of his earlier testimony vanishing, receding in the face of the prosecutor's furious onslaught. Sullivan next took aim at Schwartz's actual diagnosis of DeFeo as a neurotic. It is your testimony, as I understand it, Dr. Schwartz, that the fact that it wasn't too bright to throw everything in the sewer drain altogether in one location is significant of the fact that it was neurotic that he did this. Schwartz responded affirmatively, noting that DeFeo appeared to be acting without any clear purpose in mind, someone distracted by paranoid neurotic delusions. In doing so, he fell straight into Sullivan's trap, a trap constructed with the very notes Schwartz had, had taken during his interview of Butch. Did he tell you about not wanting to leave clues for the police, asked Sullivan. He indicated the passage, passage in Schwartz's notes when DeFeo had made exactly such a statement. I asked him about the casings and he said he did, didn't want to leave the police any clues as to what kind of gun it had been. He was not a friend of the cops and he didn't want to help them. The trap was sprung. Schwartz was now caught in his own testimony and Sullivan stood triumphantly over his prey. Now you know why he removed the casings, don't you? He asked. I know one of the reasons. There are others, Schwartz responded angrily, but his testimony had been fatally wounded by Sullivan's aggressive questioning. 
I have no further questions, the prosecutor announced as he strode back to his table. Dr. Harold Zalon testified for the prosecution. Unlike Weber's style of questioning his expert witness, Sullivan devised an elaborate question and answer exchange with Zolan, making every deliberate effort to give the jury access to Zolan's thought process so that they might come to understand how Zolan had reached his assessment and that they might even reach the same assessment themselves. Unlike Schwartz, Zolan attributed DeFeo's behavior to an antisocial personality, a form of personality disorder he distinguished from any form of mental illness. Essentially, those with such a personality disorder are fully aware of their actions, are fully able to comprehend the difference between right and wrong, but are motivated by an imperious, self-centered attitude. Sullivan and his witness were thorough in their dissection of DeFeo, presenting an ironclad case to the jury in crystal clear language that Butch was indeed responsible for his actions on the night of November 14, 1974. While Weber tried to rattle Zolan as Sullivan had rattled Schwartz, the prosecution's witness held fast to his diagnosis. Sullivan was confident that between his methodical questioning and Zolan's well-thought-out responses, the jury was finally in possession of clinical evidence that Butch was guilty of murder. After each expert witness had been questioned and cross-examined, a few more witnesses were called by Sullivan to testify. While not central to his case, their additional testimony helped to bolster Sullivan's case against DeFeo. However, the verdict of innocence or guilt rested upon the question of DeFeo's sanity as he knew it would. Weber and Sullivan made their summations. Then, on November 19, 1975, a year and five days since the murders, the presiding judge instructed the jury to gather in the deliberation chamber and return to the court with a verdict for Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr., I feel like at this point, with the amount of like psychiatrists that have been brought in and the amount of evidence that's been shown, it's really no question of insanity anymore, which I know is the defense's like only card that they have to play, but I feel like with the proof that they've brought to the table, that's not really even a question anymore. No, it's not, because... Uh, the prosecution pretty much had ironclad, like... Yeah, they brought in psychiatrists and everything, like, they... I mean, the prosec- uh, the defense did as well, but as you s- heard earlier, I mean, they the prosecution really got under their skin and just... Right, yeah. Like, the prosecution did a great job at it, and, I mean, they didn't... He didn't really have a great defense anyway. It was... The only defense he had was insanity, and the psychiatrist that they brought in just completely refuted that. So despite Sullivan's painstaking efforts, he knew that a guilty verdict was not a sure bet. He was awarded for his skepticism when the jury's first vote came back 10-2, with two holdouts who were still uncertain about DeFeo's mental state at the time of the murders. After reviewing transcripts of DeFeo's testimony, however, the vote came back at a unanimous 12-0. On Friday, November 21, 1975, Ronald DeFeo Jr. was found guilty of all six counts of second-degree murder. Uh, I still can't believe that he didn't get at least one count of first-degree for his father. Well, I I don't know if many people knew that he threatened his father. I mean, yeah, he did at the car dealership, but was anybody around to hear it? Yeah, I don't know. And, yeah, obviously anyone who would have been at home to see him try to kill him previously is dead now. Mm -hmm. Two weeks later, he was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison on all six counts. 
Uh, he remained incarcerated with the New York State Department of Corrections. Ronnie DeFeo actually ended up just passing away in March of this year, although the cause of death has not yet been revealed. Interesting. I wonder when they're going to release that information. I'm actually keeping an eye on that. Yeah, we'll have to see. We'll give you guys an update if we do find out yeah, how exactly he died in jail. That's really al- interesting. Although it should be here soon. I'm I hoping so. Yeah, be- they'll release the coroner's report or something hopefully soon. But yeah, guys, Ronnie DeFeo died in prison. He spent the rest of his life in prison. Yeah, two months ago, died in prison. And with that, I'm going to leave you guys. Oh, man, we're not even going to get into anything about the paranormal yet? Nah, I want to save that for next week. Come on. Guys, I got to leave you in the realm realm of the normal. I need answers. You will get answers (laughs) next week. But seriously, um, I wanted to leave you guys kind of in the coming off of that roller coaster of Ronnie DeFeo Jr. I know that was probably... Mind boggling. Yeah, it was a, a lot. lot. <laughs> it was a lot about his psychology and stuff that we're oh my gosh. speculating. <laughs> I think like eighty percent of that was just his psychological yeah. in the trial. Yeah, for sure. No, I I just want answers, but I know that we're about to get into the paranormal stuff. Yes, next week we're gonna come back to Amityville and we're gonna start out with the paranormal. Yeah, so we'll get into all of the spooky shit that happened after the all these deaths, this tragic murder. Oh, guys, is it the second part, you're going to have the heebie-jeebies. Yeah, so we will catch you guys next week. But if you guys do want to hit us up, obviously there won't be any guesses for the case for next week because this is going to be part two of this one. Yeah. But if you guys want to hit us up, you can check out our email, which is serialknowledgepod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash serialknowledgepod. From there, you can um, find our Facebook page as well, or I'm sorry, our Facebook group where uh, all of our members can join on there and interact with each other. Our Facebook page is where we post pictures and updates of our cases. So you can follow us there. You can become a member of the group to interact with other listeners and uh, interact with us. So find us there. And until next week, y'all. We will talk to you later. Catch you later. Bye. Peace.